served. Join Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew, I thought we said no more intestines. <clears throat> That's on Feast Meets West every Saturday, only on Radio Taiwan International, Radio for Refined Palates. All it takes is a click to listen to RTI online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. This is Radio Taiwan International. What's this all about? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? It's Curious John. What is he curious about today? Plenty of map makers down the centuries have turned their attention to Taiwan, but none have left behind a map as beautiful or mysterious as whoever it was that made the Kangxi Taiwan map. We know that this map was painted in Imperial China several hundred years ago, and it doesn't take a critic's eye to see that it has artistic as well as geographical merit. Whoever made this map treated the island's geography as a canvas, with exquisite mountains right out of a Chinese landscape painting and richly detailed human figures, animals, and buildings that liven up the blank spaces. It's as much a painting as it is a map, and it's no surprise that it's been declared one of Taiwan's national treasures. But that's about where our knowledge of the map ends. We don't know who made it, why, or even exactly when. And we have no idea how it made its way from a storehouse somewhere in China to here in Taipei. Adding to the mystery is the fact that a large chunk of the original has been damaged beyond repair. All we have to go on to tell us what that part once looked like are two copies from the early 20th century. And these copies turn out to be riddled with errors when compared to the parts of the original that still exist. All this hasn't stopped experts from trying to reconstruct what the original looked like when it was still intact, though. And the results of this effort are now on display in the National Taiwan Museum, sitting alongside the damaged original and the two later copies. All these different versions are brought together in a new exhibit called the Dream Map, Kangxi Taiwan Map's Family Reunion. Museum researcher Li Ziming joins us today for a look at the original, the later copies, and the quest to piece them all together into a new version. The Kangxi Taiwan map takes its name from the reign of the Kangxi Emperor, one of the greatest and most famous of China's final imperial dynasty. It was during his reign that Taiwan's west coast was brought under imperial rule, and the map reflects this in several ways. Firstly, it only shows Taiwan's west coast, representing Taiwan's west from a bird's-eye view as it would look if viewed from the Chinese coast across the strait. This means the north of Taiwan is on the left of the map and the southernmost bits on the right. Mr. Li says that Taiwan's eastern part, which lay beyond the island's high central mountains, would have still been unknown to Chinese mapmakers. For this reason, the central mountains form a barrier beyond which nothing can be seen. In other words, only the area under imperial control is shown, fading into misty mountains beyond which indigenous people still held their lands. 
Beautiful though the map is, Mr. Lee says that its main purpose seems to have been military in nature. The new imperial rulers of Taiwan's west coast needed to know about local geographical features and be able to see where their military units were stationed. Among the features of the map are oversized paintings of walled enclosures and even what look like a fort or two. There are also a few faint red lines, which Mr. Lee says indicate where different units were supposed to patrol. Given the obvious skill of the artists who painted this map, it's a bit of a shame that we don't know their names. There are no seals or signatures, nor does it seem are there any records of who made it. But Mr. Lee says it's not unlikely that a special imperial mapmaker's workshop was behind the map. That brings up a question, though. If we don't know who painted the map, or under what circumstances, how can we know when it was painted? How can we be so sure that it comes from the Kangxi reign? Mr. Lee says that specific details included in the map lets us pin down the date of its creation to somewhere between 1699 and 1704. It's hard to tell from Google image searches, but the map is pretty sizable. It measures 522 centimeters by 64 centimeters, and is a whole lot bigger when you count the cloth base that it's glued onto. The map's origin may not be entirely clear, but its value as a guide to daily life in Taiwan during this period is. There are larger-than-life people everywhere, both ethnic Chinese and indigenous, shown going about their day. We can see what clothes and houses looked like, again blown out of proportion and filling in some blank spaces. There are scenes of indigenous farming and hunting, details that must have seemed fascinating to whatever official the map was meant to be used by. We get a few glimpses of Taiwan's wildlife, too. And in one sizable corner, we have a town on the coast, the then capital Tainan, down in the south, with some details of the town included. In addition to these artistic flourishes, there's a whole lot of text on the map as well. A lot of the inscriptions just denote place names, but Mr. Lee says that perhaps most of them are actually meant to let the viewer know about how long a journey from one point to another might take, as transport around the new imperial territory was still limited at the time. Presumably, the finished map was put into storage somewhere in China, likely in the Forbidden City or some other imperial storehouse in Beijing, ready for consultation when needed. But then, after a number of centuries, the Boxer Rebellion broke out in China. Sometime in 1900, as chaos racked Beijing, so the story goes anyway, the map was moved. Why or how is, again, unknown. But somehow, it came to be in Taiwan, the very land it depicts. By this point, the island had been seized from the Chinese Empire some five years before, and now it was ruled as a Japanese colony. However the map had gotten here, it soon ended up in the collection of the island's chief Japanese colonial museum, the predecessor of today's National Taiwan Museum. Obviously, it's still in the museum's collection today. Even as it got here to Taiwan more than a hundred years ago, it seems that the map had seen better days. This might be why two copies of the map soon appeared. Again, we don't know exactly when they were made or under what circumstances. 
Mr. Lee says it's likely that their makers were Japanese artists, but again, we don't know who made the copies either. We don't even know which of the two came first. What's clear is that they were both hand-painted and both based on the original. These are helpful, as we've said, because the entire southernmost section of the original map, the part from today's city of Kaohsiung southward, has since been entirely destroyed. But that doesn't mean the two later copies are reliable guides to exactly how the original once looked. They're full of errors. When we compare them to the parts of the original that still exist, we can find more than a hundred mistakes in the writing alone. These include characters that have been miscopied and characters that have been accidentally left out, maybe when the artist was distracted. It's hard to find fault with the artists, given how detailed the original is and how big. And while both the copiers were clearly skilled artists too, Mr. Lee says neither of them quite managed to get the feel of the original, whether in terms of the style of painting or in the style of calligraphy. And it seems that because the original has a big missing chunk, most Taiwanese people who've seen the map, whether in textbooks or photos, will have seen the not-quite-perfect copies. It would seem that the original map, in its complete form, is lost to us. But as we've already seen, that hasn't stopped researchers from trying to reconstruct it. Armed with the knowledge of how the original looked and what kind of errors were made in the copies, they decided to fill in the missing part digitally. Work started in 2016 and was finished about two years ago. We can't be sure that it's 100% accurate, but the result sure is beautiful, and it's an exciting example of how technology can help us recover missing bits of artifacts like this one. The National Taiwan Museum has had the digital results printed out into an actual map for comparison purposes. Mr. Lee says it's the duty of a museum to display its most cherished artifacts in the best state possible for the public to see, and that it's a shame that his museum has long been unable to do this with the Kangxi Taiwan map because of the damage. Now, though, in this new exhibit, visitors can see the mysterious original and its descendants all at once, comparing, contrasting, and appreciating different versions of what may be Taiwan's most historically valuable map. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. ever wanted to say something but didn't quite know how to say it? Well, these days we would probably just send it in a text message, right? Well, what if you came from a culture that didn't have a written language? Taiwan's aborigines have long used music to communicate. And in today's Ear to the Ground, I bring you a secret language that's produced with a bamboo instrument. And ear to the ground. That's the sound of me trying and failing to play a jaw harp. 
I'm not very good at it. It's a long, flat strip of bamboo that's slightly curved and has a thin tine cut out of it. You place it in front of your mouth, and then you hold it with your left hand while rapidly pulling a string with your right hand in quick, jerking motions. And if you do it just right, the tine begins to vibrate, and the sound resonates in your mouth. It takes a lot of practice and a good teacher if you want to use the jaw harp to communicate. I'm guessing that if an Aboriginal elder heard this, he'd have no idea what I was trying to say. So how do we get jaw harps here in Taiwan? Well, even though most people call it a Jew's harp, it doesn't have a particular connection with the Jewish people. It's thought to be one of the oldest musical instruments in the world and native to Asia. It's used in all tribes of Turkic peoples, and there's even a Chinese drawing of a man playing a jaw harp from the 4th century BC. The jaw harps of Taiwan probably date back that far as well, but it wasn't until the Japanese occupation in the first part of the last century that the world came to learn about indigenous Taiwanese music. One of the first people to bring this music to the international community was a Japanese ethnomusicologist by the name of Kurosawa Takatomo. He came to Taiwan for about five months in 1943 and visited 155 villages where he made extensive recordings. And when he presented this, the music of the Bunun tribe, to a UNESCO conference in Paris back in 1952, it changed what people thought about the origins of music. These recordings, which you can hear in the background, are the only known documentation of the sounds of Taiwan's Aborigines from that time. But it was two jaw harp recordings in particular that caught my attention. A woman from the Atayal tribe plays the jaw harp and communicates with a man from the tribe who then translates her words. He says, Although we haven't seen each other for a long time, both of us are too reserved to say anything. So let's express ourselves by playing the jaw harp so that we may understand one another. All day today has been a pleasant one. I'm lucky to meet you unexpectedly. It's so delightful that I'm speechless. We as friends from our youth can rarely see each other like this. You may also have a deep feeling at the bottom of your heart. Today, stop hesitating that way and let's play merrily. Then the man takes the instrument and plays it for the woman. And then she translates. As you said right now, I was a little reserved. But since you say that we'd better not hesitate, I won't hesitate. Today we have seen each other after a long time and we don't have to think of other people. So let's enjoy ourselves to the fullest. Now, the liner notes say that it appeared as though the Atayal tribe uses the instrument to talk about other secret matters, too, and to make dates. But these days, it says, people have become literate. So it's only the older people who continue to communicate with the jaw harp. That was back in the 1950s. 
chances are there are only a handful of people left who communicate in the secret language of the jaw harp, a much more beautiful and romantic version of the modern-day text message. With an ear to the ground, I'm Andrew Ryan. Pull yourself together already. It's time to feast. Sit down at the table with Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu on Feast Meets West. Hello, welcome to the feast. This is Ellen Chu. And this is Andrew Ryan. How are you, Ellen Chu? I'm good. I am looking forward today to our silver rimmed eclipse. The silver rimmed eclipse. Mm-hmm. That's right, because on June 21st, which actually is tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, we are going to be experiencing a solar eclipse in Taiwan. Wow. And today, to celebrate one day in advance, I have created a dish. Mm-hmm. That should look like a solar eclipse. Really? Yes. Wow. A silver rimmed dish. Dish. A dish. Okay. There's going to be nothing in the dish, but you can All look right. at it and enjoy. No, I'm kidding. It's mm-hmm. going to be definitely a dish. And in fact, it's not just any old um, thing that I've made for you. It's something you requested several weeks ago. Coffee jelly. Coffee jelly. Or as they say in Japan, Kohi jelly. Kohi jelly. Okay. And we're going to be talking all about it in our show. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you saw a solar eclipse, Alan Chu? Hmm. I never really followed these. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. No. Hmm. Well, maybe. Hmm. Maybe last year when I was like, you know, reviewing the the sun and the solar eclipse with my kids oh, in their textbook. That doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't remember. Maybe when I was in high school. In high school, huh? Is it? I saw, I don't remember high school. I remember seeing one in, when I was in college. Um, but I also saw one here in Taiwan. I saw one where the whole sky went dark. Really? It like got, it dimmed How a little bit. How many seconds? Like maybe a minute or really? so, a couple minutes. Okay. It dimmed. It didn't go completely black, but it definitely right. dimmed. And then I remember seeing one also when I was at Northwestern. Mm. Oh, you know what? I saw one when I was in New York City because it was it was interesting. You could just look up. You can't because you can't look at the sun, right? Mm-hmm. You can look at the skyscrapers and see the reflection in the windows of the skyscrapers. Oh. You could see a little nibble mm, out of the sun. Yes. Okay. A nibble. All right. A little eclipsular nibble. Nibble. So it's kind of like an Oreo get, get, got bitten, right? Hey, yeah, I should have brought you Oreos instead of going through the trouble of making you coffee jelly. <laughs> but, you know. But, you know, it's all for you, Alan Chu, because you're the you. queen of our show. No. Um, I won't fight you for that crown. Okay. Uh, shall we look at the menu? Sure. Let's do it. So, in our first course, we'll tell you all about the Ring of Fire that will be visible in tomorrow's eclipse. In our second course, I'm going to head into the Feast Meets West Test Kitchen and make a coffee jelly eclipse for Ellen Chu. Yum. And in the third and final course, we'll be sampling the coffee eclipse right here in the studio. Are you looking forward to it? I am. I will tell you, because I've actually already gone into Feast Meets West Test Kitchen, and I've already made it for you. Oh, wow. 
wow. Yes. I mean, this is people, I think people know that, right? I mean, like, I'm going to be playing a little clip of me in the kitchen. Okay. There was a catastrophe. Okay. A total catastrophe. But usually when eclipses happen, you know, it's a sign of the moon and the sun. Oh. There are catastrophes. Catastrophes, Alan Chu. Yeah, see? Hopefully that was the only catastrophe. I hope so. Holy cow. Thank you for making the catastrophe happen already. It's like when people have like aquariums in their office uh-huh. with fish. Uh-huh. And so then the bad luck gets the fish and the fish die and all the people in the office are safe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, kind of the same you know, deal. I, th- I thank you for that. You're welcome. Okay. For the catastrophe in mm-hmm. my kitchen. <laughs> right. Okay. We're going to go into a song. Mm-hmm. This is called Yue Shi, right? Lunar Eclipse. Is that, am I saying it right? Yes, Because I don't want to make it sound like moon poop. <laughs> it's second sound. Going up. Bye, Karen Mock. Moa away. We'll be back in just a moment with more about our annular eclipse. Okay.
first course. Annular eclipse. Annular eclipse. Mm-hmm. Do you know what an annular eclipse is? I thought it was annual, but it's yeah, not. It's not. It's not. Annular means that it's just the rim, right? Yeah. So it means the uh, what happens is the circle,、mm-hmm. the moon, passes between the sun and the earth, and it covers the center of the sun,、mm. but it leaves its outer rim or corona. Like、oh, the, we don't want corona. Not the coronavirus, right? Like the corona crown,、mm-hmm. visible, forming what they call an annulus around the moon. This is this is a tongue twister. I did not make this up, ladies and gentlemen.、Mm-hmm. This is a real scientific thing. Okay, we just want to sound smart. Okay, that's it. And、yes. how rare is this? Let us tell you. The spectacle will not occur again until 2070 in Taiwan. It'll only be visible on the very southern tip of Taiwan. So we can't see it. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be a、uh, pretty old in 2070. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>、uh, actually, wait. Is it possible? Let's see. It's 50 years from now. I mean, we'll be pushing 100. <laughs> we'll try to live as long as 2070. All right.、Okay? We'll see. I'll meet you there, Ellen. You in、right. Pingtung. <laughs> We will meet in Suling's home. Yes. Okay.、Uh, Francis. Right. Yes. <laughs> okay. So the next time an annular solar eclipse covering such a large percentage of the sun in Taiwan will not occur until June 28th, 2215. It's okay. I don't want to wait till then. <laughs> I might be busy. <laughs> Things to I do. I think you know. Um, I already have a date on that day.、Okay? You do,、Sorry. right? She's a busy woman. She's、um, got a. I'm really a, busy. A full schedule. My schedule is all lined up. Twenty, twenty-two, fifteen. Okay, yes, yes, definitely. Definitely super busy. Where can you see it? The Taipei Astronomical Museum says <laughs> it will be visible to people in parts of Yunlin, Jiayi, Tainan, Kaohsiung, Nanchou, Hualien, and Taidong, as well as The outlying island of Penghu and Qingmen. So essentially, like everywhere except in like Taipei and northern Taiwan.、Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm feeling like we're being left out, but I'm not sure.、Hmm. All right. So can we see it in Taipei? That is the question. Observers can expect the climax of the event to take place around 4:13 p.m. on Sunday. Sunday. That's funny. It's called Sunday. Okay.、Uh, when the sun will be blocked and appear more like a new moon, so it's just gonna be a little chunk. It's、okay. gonna be a bite out of your Oreo. Okay. Also okay. When will it occur? So June twenty first. That is the day.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the eclipse in Taiwan will start around two forty nine p.m. and five twenty five p.m. in Jiayi. Okay, and the complete ring of fire is expected to occur at around four thirteen p.m. for fifty eight seconds.、Mm. That's it, ladies、wow. and gentlemen. Wow, fast. Yes.、Um, Be careful. We need to remind people that expert caution that people should use protective eyewear or the pinhole method to prevent damage to their eyes when viewing the eclipse. Okay. You know the pinhole method.、Mm-hmm. So you need two pieces of paper. You poke a pin hole in one. And hold it up so the sun shines through that hole onto the other page, and you'll be able to see as the moon passes through. Ooh! Super magical, right? Magical. Magical. There will also be a live stream, but it's a really long address, so I can't give it to you. Okay.、Um, so <laughs> yeah, okay. Con- contact us, and I'll send it to you. How's that? Okay. 
So when we come back in just a moment, uh, I'll bring you my little episode in the Feast Meets West test kitchen, attempting to make uh, an eclipsy dessert for you, Alan. Okay, Chu. so the catastrophe is going to be presented here. I should mention, I didn't get the catastrophe on tape, but I will definitely tell you what happened. Okay. It was very dramatic. All right. Similar to a volcano, you might say. Ooh, little science <laughs> experiment. Exactly. <laughs> All right, we're going to go into a song. This one is called Solar Eclipse. So different from the last song, which was a lunar eclipse. This okay. is called Shi Yu. And it's by Lu Jia Xing. Listening to Feast Meets West. Second course. 
We are back now on the second course in today's Feast Meets West, and I, Andrew Ryan, am in the Feast Meets West test kitchen. Today, I am going to make a dessert for Ellen Chu inspired by the annular eclipse, which is going to occur uh, tomorrow, so Sunday, yeah, the 21st of June. I have decided to make a coffee jelly. Uh, which has sort of become a Japanese cafe staple, you could say. And basically it's just a kind of a thick coffee flavored jelly, which you eat out of a dish and you pour cream over the top of it. Usually they use just like non-dairy cream or those little capsules you find uh, in cafes that you pour in coffee. And we're gonna do that as well because it's gonna make a nice black circle in the middle surrounded by a ring of cream, which is gonna look like the eclipse is supposed to look tomorrow in some parts of Taiwan. So I'm starting off, I've just poured in three cups of water, about 600 milliliters into a pot. And I am just stirring in the uh, agar agar powder. So I'm using uh, this instead of gelatin and that's going to make it vegan. Uh, and I'm using about one and a half tablespoons of agar to create this. So I'm just whisking it in. The next step is to bring it to boil and then reduce it to a simmer. All right, now that I've got my water uh, and agar mixture simmering in the pot, I'm going to add in four tablespoons of sugar. And uh, the next step is to put in the instant espresso. So I'm just gonna set my microphone down to do that. That's two tablespoons that are going in. All right, we had just a bit of a mishap in the kitchen just now. Uh, unfortunately, I was using too small of a pot and it totally bubbled over when I put in the instant espresso. Something you need to know is that uh, whenever you add espresso powder to water, it's just gonna boil over. Um, so I was using too small of a pot and now I have a huge sticky mess in my kitchen because it had sugar in there, went all over my stove, into my stove, on the floor. Um, yeah, so I just spent about 30 minutes cleaning that up with my lovely roommate. Thank you for that. Uh, and now we're gonna do a second attempt and I'm using a much bigger pot. So we're just gonna fast forward to the part where I add the coffee in. Okay, so we're adding in the coffee. This time, uh, second time's a charm, hopefully. So in goes about two tablespoons of the instant espresso power into the simmering water, sugar, and agar-agar mixture. Now we've whisked that in for about two minutes and we're just removing it from the heat. Uh, we're gonna let it cool for five minutes and then we're going to pour them into ramekins, which will then go in the refrigerator overnight and hopefully tomorrow everything is going to be just fine and it will have set uh, one other thing is you want to uh, skim the bubbles off the top you can just tap the uh, ramekins on the counter or your bowls on a counter to make sure that the bubbles rise to the top and then you skin them off uh, and you have to refrigerate it for at least four to five hours so when we return in our third course, Alan Chu's gonna be sampling it. Hopefully it will have set. 
but before we get there to our third course, we're going to play another song. This is called Guodong, or Jello, or Jelly, as my British friends would like to say. And it's by Hong Wei. Much more to come when the feast continues. Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew, I thought we said no more intestines. <clears throat> That's on Feast Meets West every Saturday only on Radio Taiwan International, radio for refined palates. Listen, are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Third course. Wow. Okay, so I have just served up a little white ramekin, and inside mm-hmm. it, it's got black coffee jelly, mm-hmm. and Ellen Chu is going to town. Do you want to tell us what you've done? I mixed up my coffee creamer in there, and I like to mix it up, but, you know, it seems like usually I mix it up, it becomes all like, you know, gel- you know how gelatin, you know, they mix up, mm-hmm. but this one gets bigger chunks. It's mm-hmm. harder, right? It is thicker than the average mm. jelly. You could say that. Okay. Is it because you put more gelatin powder? Yes. I looked at the box and I did exactly what it said and mm-hmm. it came out thicker than I wanted. Oh, okay. Yeah. So That's maybe okay. It's still good. Next time we'll do it less thick. Because you use nice coffee, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Did. But I like it. 
So basically what you do is you pour some coffee creamer over the top of it mm -hmm. to cut through the bitterness of the coffee mm. and the sugar and to give mm -hmm. it a creamier texture. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and uh, so for when I was serving this to Ellen Chu, I took the creamer and I poured it in a little circle around the edges of it so it looks like the corona around the moon moon so the black moon in the center and the white rim of the sun around the edges it's good yeah okay so basically it's just gelatin powder with coffee right no no this is uh agar powder okay. because i bought the wrong thing <laughs> but normally you can use gelatin powder right? you can use gelatin mm -hmm. or you can use agar so the japanese version uses either one i mean it's relatively simple but you do have to be really careful with your measurements and with your heat really yes. so how do you know you know if you're doing the right measurement Follow the recipe, baby. Really? There is a recipe for it? Yeah, you can okay. go back and listen to the second course and hear the whole recipe. Okay. Although I would change it a little bit. I would put a little bit less of the agar powder in it. Okay. I think this is for like one of those thicker desserts. Oh, yes. It's less like a... Um, Gelatin. Traditional Japanese. Okay, gelatin. Uh, kohi jelly. Yeah, the kohi jelly is more um, soft mm -hmm. in texture, bouncy. Yes, right? that's right. Okay. Just a little history on this. I did a little research into this. Apparently, uh, coffee jelly mm -hmm. uh, was once common in British and American cookbooks, and now it's most common in Japan, mm. where it can be found in restaurants and convenience stores. Little guess, do you know when the first coffee jelly appeared in cookbooks published in England? Uh, let me see. Maybe in 1720? Little uh, later than that, 1817, okay. they did use calf's foot jelly. Calf's um, what? Calf's foot jelly. Okay. So, like, gelatin comes from, like, hooves, right? Ew. Um, in the, <laughs> if you make it that way. Well. <laughs> Sounds scary. That is gelatin. Okay. So, in the early 20th century, coffee jelly was promoted as a healthier alternative to hot coffee. Mm -hmm. Because people thought the gelatin would absorb the excess acid in the stomach. Ooh. When do you think Japanese coffee jelly was first developed? Uh... Japanese coffee jelly, let me think. Should be in the 19. Mm -hmm. 19 what? 1980. 19, it was during the Taisho period, which was 1912 to 1926. Okay. Oh. In imitation of European molded jellies, it appealed to modern young men with taste for Western fashion. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see. All righty. So there is a look at coffee jelly. Jelly. Kohi jelly. Kohi jelly. That's right. <laughs> Especially for the Eclipse and for Alan Chu. Thank you. But I, I enjoy it. I will continue to experiment. Okay. Yeah. Maybe next time you can make the perfect... Ratio. Ratio. Yeah. And bring it to us. The golden ratio. Yes. The, the golden ratio. And let us know. Or as I like to call it, the golden billy. Ooh. Huangjin billy. Ooh, billy. <laughs> billy. I like that. Mm. All right. Do you want to give us our addresses? Okay. Here up. It's P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. Email us at androo at rti.org.tw. And follow us next week. We'll be serving a jasmine tea inspired by four jasmine-related songs. Why don't you do a jasmine tea gelatin? <laughs> In my spare time? Sure. Maybe you could try to make me one, Ellen Chu, just for fun. You have the Turn lab. the tables, the lab. You're... 
You're more than welcome to use my lab. Okay. Anytime you want to come over. Okay. I'll give you the key and let you in. Thank you. I'll point you in the right direction that of all the my honor. utensils that okay. you might need to create some many special dishes for me. All right. Okay. One final song. One it's also final related song. to it the eclipse. Okay. And <laughs> this is called Total Eclipse of the Heart and it's by Bonnie Tyler. I love this song so much. Okay, let's do it. I never thought in the 20 years on Feasting Sussy you'd get the chance to play it. And, and now you get it. Here we are. Official. That's right. All right. For Feasting Sussy, I'm Andrew Ryan. This is Ellen Chu. See you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit lonely and you're never coming around. Turn around Every now and then I get a little bit tired Of listening to the sound of my tears Turn around Every now and then I get a little bit nervous That the best of all the years have gone by Turn around Every now and then I get a little bit terrified And then I see the look in your eyes
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.